later down the line, 5, 10, 20 years, there can be a, some sort of stressor, like either a car accident or a grief in the family, emotional, physical, whatever kind of stressor, the Lyme can kind of resurface at that time. In many cases, we don't necessarily know whether that's a new exposure or whether that's the dormant Lyme becoming reactivated. Hey guys, welcome back to the Digest This Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Cameron. And today on the show, I have Dr. Maria Marion. She is a naturopathic doctor who specializes in mold, Lyme disease, and digestive issues and addresses them in a natural and holistic approach using some of the latest and greatest technology and supplements on the market today. And in this episode, we dive into mold toxicity and Lyme disease specifically. And we look into signs of what to look for if you have these issues and where to turn for help. So much more is discussed in this episode and I cannot wait for you guys to listen. So let's get right into it. Teeth sensitivity is the least of your concerns when whitening your teeth. The ingredients in teeth whitening bleach can actually damage the cells of our gums. It can also damage the nerves, blood vessels, and connective tissues of the tooth. Overuse of these chemicals can lead to tooth sensitivity and gum irritation. If whitening products are used incorrectly, the peroxide in the whitening gel can wear away tooth enamel and irritate the dental nerves. Another risk to teeth whitening is a chemical burn resulting in more severe pain and inflammation if the whitening product reaches the gums repeatedly. And there have been reports that whitening strips may even strip tooth enamel. And tooth enamel cannot be, and I quote, grown back or recovered. Tooth enamel is the hardest tissue in the body. Problem is, it's not living tissue, so it can't naturally be regenerated. Once it's gone, it's gone. That's why it's so important to care for your teeth. There's no recovery. Bite toothpaste bits have been in my household since summer of last year, and they also just came out with a teeth whitening kit, which I'm so excited about because I already love their toothpaste. Bite's teeth whitening kit is made without harmful chemicals and is safe for sensitive teeth. It's also cruelty-free, vegan, and lightly flavored with natural peppermint oil. Plus, it comes in a glass jar with a compostable applicator, so there's no alcohol, no propylene glycol, and no parabens or synthetic dyes or flavors. If you want to try this teeth whitening kit or any of Bite's natural toothpaste bits, Bite is offering my listeners 20% off your first order. Just go to trybite.com slash digest or use code digest at checkout to claim this deal. Thank you so much, Dr. Marion, for coming on the show today. It's really great to be here. I'm excited to have this talk. I've been following you for a while, so it's an honor to be on the podcast. I'm excited. Well, I have so many great questions. I want to dive deep into mold and Lyme, as well as a few other you know, protocols that we can navigate through those different diseases. But 
for those, first of all, there's a lot of people going and sharing that they have mold toxicity or a lot of people questioning if they have a mold issue. So first of all, what are some clear signs of mold toxicity? Yeah, so mold is really interesting because it really can affect almost every system in the body. For some people, they may simply have anxiety or depression, and that's their only symptom. And so that can be really tricky for providers to pick up on the fact that there may be something environmental going on. Um, but other times there can be insomnia or frequency with urination. There's often thyroid dysregulation. And so you can see actual changes in thyroid hormone. And of course, the symptoms um, that go along with that, usually we see hypothyroid with mold. So it's more like fatigue and constipation and gaining weight. Um, and the fatigue that I find with mold is like a really, I would say, severe fatigue. It's not just like you're every day, like you're a little bit sleepy. It's like exhaustion, that kind of level of like, you're on the couch and you're really thinking twice about even getting up to go to bed at night. <laughs> it's that mm -hmm. level of fatigue. Um, and then I would say that, um, so you can see changes in thyroid hormone in that way and then the symptoms along that go along with it. And then you'll also often see digestive symptoms. Um, so mycotoxins in the GI tract can cause leaky gut. Um, the mycotoxins can affect the vagus nerve and then lead to things like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth from the lowered or from the slower GI motility. Um, so you may see constipation, abdominal pain, gas, bloating. You might see diarrhea and other digestive issues. Um, you can also see musculoskeletal symptoms like joint pain, muscle pain, um, generalized inflammation. And then um, you'll also see a lot of dysregulation with hormones. So you'll see changes in estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, of course, the thyroid hormones, like I mentioned, um, but also some of the metabolic um, regulating hormones like leptin and growth hormone and so forth. So you might see um, along with those things, more fatigue or changes in libido, changes in energy level, weight gain, difficulty losing weight, obesity. Um, and then cortisol is really pretty significantly affected as well, which can, of course, cause changes in weight um, as well as energy level. So you might see low cortisol, which would cause more fatigue, or you might see high cortisol, which will cause a lot of metabolic issues, especially weight gain around the central abdominal area, the chest and the back. Um, and then many times, I don't know if I mentioned yet insomnia, but a lot of times cortisol is spiking at night. And so people will wake up in the middle of the night and have difficulty falling back asleep. Um, so that's a big long list. And I'm sure I missed some of the key symptoms because again, mold can look so different in different people. Um, but those are some of the key things that kind of clue me in to start to look for mold. And it's interesting too, because that's such a broad range of symptoms. And obviously, if you're experiencing some of those symptoms, that doesn't mean you have mold. So that could also be tricky. Can you elaborate a little bit more of how does mold affect our hormones more like specifically? I just saw you had a recent post on your Instagram about, you know, the eight different signs of how like mold affects your hormones. So can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So I did post um, a pretty elaborate post. So it takes a little while to sift through, but 
as I mentioned, you can see lowered testosterone in both males and females. Um, you can see increase in estrogen in both males and females. Um, and that's often due to an increase or upregulation in the aromatase enzyme, which is the enzyme that converts testosterone to estrogen. So you'll see that in both men and women. And estrogen is also a stress hormone. So it will often go up in, in times of stress. And so if you're living in a moldy environment, you're going to be experiencing both physiological stress and often emotional stress. You know, viewers can sort of click through and look at all of those, but I would say you would want to do a comprehensive panel on hormones to see what's going on. And oftentimes modulating hormones is a really, I would say, surefire way to helping patients feel better quicker, but it doesn't necessarily mean there's mold going on, right? Like if you see an imbalance between the estrogen and progesterone ratio in women, or if you see lower testosterone in men or women, there's lots and lots and lots of things that can cause that. Mold is one of them. So mold would be on what we would call our differential diagnosis. And so you, as doctors, come up with a differential, a list of diagnoses that can possibly cause what you're seeing in the patient. And then you work through various tests to decide which of those diagnoses is most likely, and often it's more than one. But if we suspect mold, and it's a really common thing in Washington state, we're pretty damp and dark and most of the year almost around here, but really it can happen in almost any state. But what I'll do is I'll run a screen, which is called an Aspergillus Niger IgG on almost all of my new patients. And I am in Washington state, so I feel like that's a pretty good way of, of just standard screen on most people. And if that number is super high, then that clues me in to look more deeply or more closely for mold. It's not a great test because it's an IgG, so it's an antibody test, meaning that it's not actually a test for whether there's mold in your body or in your environment. It's actually just telling us how responsive to mold your immune system is. And so for some people, they can have very hypersensitive immune systems, especially to funguses. So they could have ha had in any time in their past sort of a mild or moderate exposure to mold, and they could be pumping out antibodies at a really high level. And that doesn't necessarily mean they're actively living in mold or that they have mold in their bodies. So again, it doesn't necessarily roll in or out mold. Sometimes people's immune systems are very suppressed. And so they could have a low Aspergillus niger IgG antibody, but they could be living in really moldy environments. And we might see that with things like Lyme disease, which is very immunosuppressive. But in any case, I include it as one of just my standard labs on almost every new patient. And if it's off the charts, then I'm talking with the patient more about their environment um, whether there's been any, been any water damage in the home, leaks, if there's a musty smell, if it's an older home, if there's a basement, if there's carpets. So we have kind of like a sequence or a series of questions that we might start to explore whether water damage buildings might be a piece to their history. And then we may pursue, if it is, we may pursue more specific and sensitive tests. Um, and there's a variety out there both through Vibrant Wellness and Great Plains Lab are the two labs that I tend to use most frequently. And there's two particular tests. There's an organic acids test and a mycotoxin test. And the organic acids test is a pretty comprehensive look actually at the whole system, detoxification markers, nutrient markers, and different things. But primarily with respect to mold, I'm using that to identify if there's funguses 
living in the body. And it also identifies if there's candida going on. And it's a urine test, which is pretty simple. And especially for kiddos, there's no blood draw involved. So that's telling me if there's mold in the body, as well as a number of other markers for kind of whole system health. Then the mycotoxin test is telling me whether there's mycotoxins in the system, meaning when there's mold in your environment, for example, there may be two or more, often multiple species of mold living in the environment. It might be aspergillus and penicillin plus a bunch of others, but those two types of molds are competing each other for real estate. And so they're actively creating mycotoxins in order to try to kill off the other mold. But the problem is that those mycotoxins are highly toxic to humans. Did you say penicillin? Mm -hmm. Penicillin is a type of fungus, yes. Actually, we'll often see people, if they have had you know, lifelong history of of mold issues, they might have an allergy or a, a bad reaction towards that particular antibiotic. Yeah, well, and that always jumps out at me whenever I hear penicillin because ever since I was a little kid, I want to say like five years old and up, um, I actually developed an uh, allergic reaction to penicillin. So up until this day, every time I, you know, go see a doctor or something, they're like, are you allergic to any medications? And of course I'm like, yes, penicillin. And so if someone is allergic to penicillin, are they highly more highly susceptible to mold in general? That's a good question. Um, I would have to look into that. I've, if I had to guess, probably, although it, you know, a good proportion of the population is pretty susceptible to mold in the first place, but I would have to look into whether an, a penicillin allergy specific, uh, excuse me, specifically leads to more of a mold hypersensitivity. If I had to guess, yes, but penicillin is just one of the many common types of mold. It, it may not even be the what I would consider to be the most common. Um, usually we see aspergillus niger and stachybotrys and fusarium and a few others that are pretty common as well. But that's a, a really good question. Now you were talking about testing and that was actually one of my questions is that you are doing multiple different tests and viewing different things. Is there a one for all test of just mold toxicity. If I were to want to go on some online testing lab and say, I want to be tested for mold, is there anything like that? Not really, actually, because the problem is, I mean, maybe there's an, a, you can combine what I should say is you can combine both the organic acids test and the mycotoxin test through a couple of those lab companies. But the issue with mold is that actually four things can go wrong when with mold. Um, you can have a mold infection, meaning you got inoculated by some mold species, often either Fusarium or Aspergillus or Stachybotrys, whatever the mold is. It gets inside your body and it grows in the body. Often that's the sinuses, the lungs, the gut, but it can become a systemic issue, especially if there's leaky gut. So that's situation one. Situation two is that there can be mycotoxins in the body, which means you just purely have a level of toxicity from these inert chemicals that the molds are using as ammunition to fight each other. So again, like Sacubotrys might be growing next to Aspergillus and they're constantly creating um, basically ammunition against each other to fight for real estate. But then we get those toxins in our system either through inhalation or through the skin or however it is. And then that gets into the body and many people are slower detoxifiers of those mycotoxins. So you can have a level of toxicity, that's situation two. 
Situation three is something called chronic inflammatory response syndrome, or CIRS, or SIRS, sometimes people call it. And that's really just a complex dysregulation of the entire immune system, which can be considered sort of a combination of all four, but it can also be associated with other things like Lyme disease and other issues. And then the fourth situation that can happen is a mold allergy, and that's actually a true IgE hypersensitivity reaction to one or more types of mold. So if you have mold issues, then it could be one of those four things. It could be two of those four things. It could be three or it could be all of those four things. The tests that kind of go along with each of those four situations are different. And to my knowledge, I don't know of a test out there that really encompasses all four situations, particularly because the testing involved with chronic inflammatory response syndrome um, is fairly comprehensive. It's it's and also there's no real crea- uh, real clear diagnostic criteria, but there's lots and lots of blood tests that in- are involved with that, and that is actually kind of the most severe presentation, I would say, of mold illness. But many people. Um, do present with that. And that's more of Dr. Richie Schumacher's work, if you're familiar with him at all. That's great information. Um, also, mold is, I want to say, a fungus. Correct. The reason I'm asking that is candida is a fungus, but mold and candida are different. Yes. If someone has candida, they don't have necessarily mold toxicity and, and vice versa. Correct. But a lot of times you'll see them together. So mold, or excuse me, candida is a yeast and most everybody, if not everybody, has some amount of yeast over or yeast growth in the gut. So we all have a little bit of candida, but what happens for a variety of reasons, either there's too much sugar in the diet, frequent or even single course of antibiotics can promote yeast overgrowth, lowered levels of estrogen or hormone imbalance in general, and variety of other factors can lead to candida overgrowth, but you'll often see well, either in the gut or the vaginal area or otherwise, it can also be systemic. But oftentimes with people that have mold issues, either again, it's in their environment or it's in their body or it's some part of their past, like maybe they're not even currently living in the moldy environment, but they did a long time ago. Their immune systems become sort of dysregulated in that way. Those people are often prone to candida issues or just fungal hypersensitivity issues. So maybe they just have a reasonable amount of candida growth, um, but they're actually really sensitive to it. And there's also other yeasts that grow in the gut, um, such as Saccharomyces cerevisiae, which um, is a different type of yeast. It's actually considered, to my knowledge, a beneficial type of yeast, but it can also overgrow. Um, And hypersensitivity to that yeast is associated with inflammatory bowel diseases like Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. It's interesting um, you say that sacra- the, the Saccharomyces um, cerevisiae, is that how you pronounce how it? Say it? <laughs> I know, I can never pronounce it, but that's actually a lot of my followers know if they've been following me for a long time, that's the yeast that actually took over my body. It was the fungus mm-hmm. took over my body. And, um, and of course it had a lot of gut issues associated with that. And there's a very common connection between that yeast and an actual probiotic and it's the saccharomyces bul- it's bilardi bilardi yeah, yeah. Bilardi. and so that actual that probiotic i stay away from because i just le- legit almost died from this f- 
yeast overgrowth. And I personally feel a connection between those two. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to take that probiotic. Now, That all that said, now for someone that may be suffering from candida or mold or has in the past, would you treat a mold, would you treat a candida diet the same as a mold diet? Does that make sense? Because typically people would go low carb, low sugar, et cetera. Yeah, there's a lot of crossover, I would say, between them. And again, you're often seeing people with both issues, both candida and mold going on. But I would say the differences would be there's some foods that we know have mold or mold more likely to have mold growth on the food itself or mycotoxins, such as coffee, peanuts, peanut butter, um, some mushrooms. just in general nuts. And then, yeah, fun- mold or excuse me, mushrooms um, can cause mold or fungal hypersensitivity as well. Well, if that person is high, okay. overreactive to funguses in general, then they're going to be reacting potentially to mushrooms. Whereas candida is more of um, an anti-high glycemic diet. So you're avoiding high sugar fruits, you're avoiding refined carbohydrates, certainly avoiding sugar. Anything that is going to spike the blood sugar and that is going to be a big source of sugar is going to feed candida. Um, but say you're living in mold, you don't really have a big candida issue. You probably have mold growth in the body potentially. And if you're feeding your body a lot of sugar, that mold can also feed on the sugar. Um, So regardless of whether there's candida there, there is a lot of overlap in kind of the overall dietary approaches. Right. So moral of the story, just stay away from sugar, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Just stay away from- Yeah, bottom line. And for most people, Uh, that's really the case. (laughs) Right. Because I mean, that's a whole nother uh, podcast episode right there. Mm -hmm. But um, okay. So if someone were to just be writing down with a pen and paper, again, let's list some foods to stay away from if you are suffering from mold or candida. So you mentioned peanuts- Yeah, with mold, I'm often talking more about peanuts, coffee, a lot of other nuts, cashews can be stored in a way that grows mold. Some cheeses can aggravate people with mold issues, especially the kind of aged hard cheeses. The soft cheeses are less of an issue for those patients. Any type of fermented alcohol, well, I guess all alcohol is really pretty much fermented, Mm -hmm. but particularly any alcohol that is fermented with yeast like beer. When I was suffering from candida, um, I actually was drinking kombucha, which actually was feeding the yeast, which Mm -hmm. I didn't know at the time. And so kombucha, that's typically a no. Kombucha, it's a big dose of microbes with a big dose of sugar. (laughs) Those things together aren't too um, optimal, particularly a lot of the beneficial bacteria that you're supposedly getting with that aren't going to survive the stomach environment. And then the next step in the digestive process is the small intestine. And you still don't really want very many microbes in the small intestine. Where you want things to go is the large intestine. So some of those foods like, or, you know, kombucha is the best way to go about populating the gut with healthy microbes and can be particularly problematic for people with yeast and mold issues. Now, for someone that loves coffee, there are some coffees that they do test for mold. And mm-hmm. is would that be okay for someone? Yeah, I would say so. So pure, I usually use purity organic coffee. Um, and that one tests for mold. I know that there's a few others out there. I saw that you had posted on your Instagram a brand that I jotted down somewhere and I was going to try that one out. 
All right. Now let's just say someone is suffering from mold. How can someone detox from mold if they're going through it right now? Yeah. So it's pretty, I would say complicated. I mean, working with them, a provider that is really well versed in this type of condition is really important, but say that's just not available to you, finances or otherwise. Um, Sometimes people are in an area where there just really aren't that many experts, Um, but that would be number one. But if you're not, if those aren't available to you, I would say really number one, the first step is to get out of the moldy environment or to reduce the mold exposure to the extent that you're able. Um, And so identifying the source in the home is really going to be step number one, because I always use this metaphor, but if you have it's either a sink or a bucket, you kind of pick your metaphor, but if the faucet is all the way on, even if your drain is all the way open, the bucket's going to the sink is going to continually be pretty full. And if your body is this sink full of toxins and other things, but right now we're talking about mold and mold toxins, you're not going to be able to empty the sink until you turn the faucet off. Whether or not you're taking detox support, doing colonics, doing lymph drainage, doing all the great things that are going to open the drain to its maximum capacity you still won't be able to completely eradicate everything until you turn the faucet off, right? And so turning off the faucet is important and and, um, limiting or eliminating the exposure is kind of step number one. But as you're doing that, because that can take some time, sometimes it involves, you know, home remediation, home testing and that kind of thing. You want to make sure that all of your drainage pathways so that your drain is actually as wide open as it can be. Are you having a bowel movement every day um, or multiple times a day? If you're not, if you're having a poop every two days, every three days, once a week, then you're really not detoxing. And a lot of those mycotoxins are going to be recirculating in the body. They're getting reabsorbed in the large intestine, going right back up to the liver. And the liver has to do that job all over again and try to put it back in the gut to get it out of the body. Um, So are you peeing? Are you pooping? Are you breathing? Are you sweating? Kind of getting all of those emunctory, we call them emunctory pathways open in order to make sure things are getting out of the body. And then I would say you need to kind of evaluate, and again, those tests are key, but you want to know whether there is mold living in your body or not. Because if there's mold living in the body, you have to consider using antifungals, whether those are herbal medicines or pharmaceutical medicines, killing the mold in the body is going to be at some point necessary. Um, But for many people, they don't actually have that problem. They may be living in the moldy environment and they get inundated with a lot of the mold toxins, but they didn't necessarily get inoculated with the mold. So not everybody has fungal overgrowth in the body, but if you do, you need to consider antifungals. And what are some antifungals? Yeah, so a lot of times in the pharmaceutical range, we might consider nystatin, um, itraconazole, diflucan, and those are kind of the more heavy-duty drugs. Um, Both itraconazole and diflucan um, can be a little bit more aggressive and hard on the liver. So that's kind of the um, top tier. If somebody has a really severe overgrowth, we're more going in that direction. If it's isolated to the gut, we might use nystatin. But those are the pharmaceuticals. There's many, many herbs that we would typically try out before going that direction. Um, I usually find that the combination products um, of multiple herbs 
are the most effective. Um, for example, I use Elimicand from Research Nutritionals a lot, which is a brand. I use AFNG from Byron White a lot. And there's a number of others, but the single herbs that you can use are things like neem, garlic, and oregano oil, and, you know, a bunch of others that I'm I'm probably not thinking of right now, but there's many, many plants or herbs that are antifungal. Okay, great. And then going back to the beginning, how does one accumulate mold in the body? I know we, we basically touched on this. Is it their environment? Is it what they're eating? Is it stress? Yeah. So, and actually before we go there and these things are in some way connected, I should have also mentioned a general approach to treating mold is really, um, there's a high need for binders. And if you were to do nothing else, you really need to be on a binder. And what that's doing, there's a a wide range of binders that we can choose from things like charcoal, chlorella, bentonite clay, fulvic and humic acid, and on and on. But those things bind mycotoxins and other toxins in the gut so that you don't recirculate them in the body and so that they're being removed with your stool. So your question about how does how do we basically accumulate these things in the body, um, they've done a lot of ex- uh, exploration research into this, but a pretty good proportion of the population are just poor detoxifiers of mold toxins. And so... When we do a mycotoxin test, I had one patient who had 38 times the upper limit of, I believe it was either ochratoxin or gliotoxin um, in the body, which are two mycotoxins. And we don't necessarily know when those mycotoxins ended up in her body. If I had to guess, it wasn't within the past year because that is an insanely high amount. Um, and so those mycotoxins really could have persisted in her body for five, 10, maybe even 25 years. We don't really know. And I'm sure there's more research going on into this, but we don't really have the forensic ability to say, well, this is from your current home or this is from your home five years ago. But in any case, the, the toxins um, concentrate in the body and certain toxins will kind of go to certain areas. There are some that uh, really kind of concentrate in the spleen. There are others that more affect the thymus, others that affect the brain or the gut. Um, and they just basically, in the same way that you would potentially pick up heavy metals and start to kind of collect heavy metal toxicity, mycotoxins can collect in the body. And particularly if you're not detoxing, um, which many people aren't, especially if they have Lyme disease or other sources of toxicity, uh, or they're not pooping every day, et cetera, then you're just accumulating these toxins in the body. Okay. So definitely, like you said, detoxing, and then you had mentioned sweating is huge. Mm-hmm. So if you yeah. have a sauna, even if you don't have a sauna, I mean, hot yeah, showers. Yeah, if you don't have a sauna, then yeah, take a hot bath. Um, people always say like, if you're in a hot tub, you don't actually sweat, what you do? Um, you are sweating a pretty significant amount and you can you know, sit in a hot, bath for 20 minutes and really get a good sweat going. Aerobic exercise where you're getting a pretty good sweat is also a means of um, getting toxins out via sweat. But yes, of course, sauna can be really helpful if that's available. Um, And, you know, sauna has a lot of other great benefits as well. It's helping to vasodilate and get blood circulation going. And so you're mobilizing or you have a, a bit better ability to mobilize some of the 
toxins that have deposited in various places and try to get them out of the body. Um, if you particularly combine that with dry skin brushing or lymph circulation, um, then that can be really helpful in, in also moving toxins you know, up and out of the body. And then really honestly making sure you're drinking enough water. Like number one thing that most people aren't doing is drinking enough water and your urine is is actively your kidneys and your urine is actively detoxing you all day long. So if you're not drinking enough water, then you're really not detoxing as well as you could be. Yeah, stay hydrated, guys. So last question, and then we're gonna I wanna talk about lime. But again, mold, the cause. Is it what they're eating or is it just the environment? Is it is it a combination? You know, it's a combination really. Um, I've, I've seen some patients where we're really pretty sure and it's difficult to be sure with on beyond a shadow of a doubt that the environment isn't a contributor, but I've seen them just infested with high levels of mold overgrowth in their body and they're living in a brand new home. We test the home, it's not the home. You know, they lived in that home for 10 years maybe or whatever it is. Um, so in that case, we might be looking more towards diet and other factors such as Lyme disease, because if the immune system is generally suppressed, then you're not going to be able to fight off mold exposure as easily and it may get into the body and stay in the body more easily. Um, so in a lot of cases, it's not the environment, but in many cases it is. And so, um, you really just you have to become the provider really has to become a detective or the patient themselves often are also becoming detectives in terms of ruling out whether it's going on in the environment. And if it's not, then you're looking more towards diet and internal factors. Okay. Now, speaking of Lyme, how do you know if you have it, first of all? Yeah. So Lyme is really pretty complicated, as I'm sure you've maybe gathered, there is really no foolproof lab test. Um, there's more progress, I would say, going on in this area currently. And I think within a short amount of time, maybe a year, a few years, we might have more and more uh, reliable tests. But right now it's a clinical diagnosis. And so there are no tests that can definitively rule Lyme out. Um, there are tests that can rule it in, but there are no tests that can definitively rule it out, at least that are available to the standard sort of public on the you know basic uh, blood work. Um, but some of the symptoms that you might see for acute Lyme are different from chronic. Um, oftentimes, acute Lyme is missed, and so we're more frequently seeing the symptoms of chronic Lyme disease, which might be things like severe headaches, neck stiffness. Oftentimes there's persistent fatigue or just really deep exhaustion. You might see arthritis with severe joint pain and swelling, especially in the knees or other large joints. Oftentimes you can see skin rashes or just general variety really of skin issues. There can be pain in the tendons and the muscles and the joints and also in the bones. And the pain is often kind of intermittent, like it bounces around from compartment to compartment. It comes and goes. They call this wandering or migrating pain that is pretty closely associated with Lyme. Um, and then you can see a regular heartbeat uh, or heart palpitations. Oftentimes, um, the Lyme has affected the heart and caused inflammation there, which is called Lyme carditis. 
There can be dizziness, shortness of breath, inflammation of the brain and spinal cord in general, which can sometimes cause those things like the dizziness and the headaches. Oftentimes there's nerve pain, could be shooting pains, could be uh, numbness or tingling. There can be burning sensations in the hands or in the feet. And then many times problems with short-term memory, there can be poor balance and difficulty walking, and then a whole host of mental health problems. Probably the two most common things that we see are depression and anxiety, but there can be other situations as well, sometimes obsessive compulsive presentations and that kind of thing. And that really is, honestly, that's a short list <laughs> of what we really see with Lyme. It can, it can present as almost anything, but those are the most common. Yeah. Well, and not to scare people away too, because again, if you have some of the symptoms you mentioned, it doesn't mean you have Lyme. So for someone's, I guess, state of mind, can they go to their doctor and say, hey, can I be tested for Lyme? Yeah. I mean, you absolutely can, but the likelihood that that provider is going to be open to testing for Lyme is pretty low, unfortunately. Um, They may ask you a series of questions about whether you recall a tick bite, whether you've recently traveled to the Northeast or not. And these kinds of questions are just really outdated. At this point, Lyme exists everywhere. It doesn't matter whether you were recently in the Northeast, like, uh, you know, Pennsylvania and New York and that that area. Um, You can pick up Lyme everywhere and and people travel. Um, there's also in utero transmission. And so some people were really born with this um, and were it was transmitted in utero or, or in the womb from mother to fetus. Um, so if you go to your provider and you ask to be tested for Lyme, oftentimes they'll ask you a few questions. And if they don't think that there's a high risk or um, reason to believe that there's been exposure, then they probably won't run the test. But even if they did, like say it's an open-minded provider, Um, And this, I should say, like, it depends kind of if you're seeing a naturopathic doctor or a regular old MD, functional medicine providers may be kind of somewhere in the middle. Um, The NDs are going to be more on the open-minded side, and I I would say they're probably going to be more open to it. But this is like your regular MD, PCP, wherever it is. Um, They're most likely not going to run the test, or even if they do, like say they're like just trying to kind of appease you or whatever, uh, they're they're going to run a, run a two-step process, which is the standard test for Lyme, which means they first, they start with an ELISA. And if the ELISA is positive, then they'll move on to a Western blot. If the ELISA is negative, they will not move on to the Western blot. But the problem is that both tests have a really high probability of having a false negative. It's about, I mean, there's statistics thrown around all the time, but the combination really has about a 70% chance of missing Lyme disease. And most Lyme providers would put that percentage in the upwards of 90, 95% misses Lyme more than that. And one of the reasons for that is because those tests are really based on Borrelia burgdorferi, um, of which there are 15 strains. And so that sort of standardized process was developed 50 years ago based on our very limited knowledge of Lyme at that time. But now we know that Lyme can be caused by a whole host of other Borrelia species, including Borrelia miyamotoi and recurrentis and some of these other Borrelia species that are found both in the United States as well as Europe and other areas of the world. And those standard tests, the ELISA and the Western blot, don't always pick up those other species of Borrelia. 
Um, so whether or not that provider is open to testing for it or not, you may not get an accurate outcome unless you're working one with somebody that is really knowledgeable about Lyme disease and two, ordering the right tests. Right. I'm just looking online too. Now there's this place called walkinlab.com. Maybe you're Mm -hmm. familiar with them and they offer Lyme tests and Uh they range from $130 to $400. If you want the $400 one, it's like the whole extensive, you know, thing. So if it's legit or not, but it, I've done other tests through this company before. They offer so many just different at-home tests. Um, it's again, it's called WalkInLab.com. Uh, I'm not no affiliation, but you know, if you want to check check that out um, and just type in, they have a search bar. Type in Lyme and see what pops up. Yeah, so it it's probably what your like you know your standard lab like LabCorp or Quest does, really. It's probably the, yeah, it looks like probably the ELISA um, is what they're doing. And that's the same as what you can get out of like a, a normal MD if, they, if they're open enough to, to run it, which is going to miss Lyme in, in 70 or more percent of cases. Um, say it's a Western blot though. I mean, this is often what I'll do, especially if patients don't have the financial resources to pursue some of the more sensitive and specific tests. I skip the ELISA altogether and I move on to step two, which is the Western blot. And if a patient has, so with the Western blot, the CDC says it's positive for Lyme if they have at least five bands within the IgG bands or at least two bands positive within the IgM bands. Um, And that's the only way it's considered positive to the CDC, which is very narrow and sort of absurd. But if I see a patient with four bands, that's a pretty high clinical suspicion that there was at least in the past some exposure to Lyme, particularly if some of the bands that are showing up are Lyme specific. So some of the bands like P41, IgG P41, there's a lot of cross reactivity between that band and between viruses. It can actually just be a, an antibody to a flagella, a lot of bacteria have flagella. So if that one comes up, it's not really you know that indicative that there's been a Lyme Borrelia exposure. But if P23 or P98 or some of the other more Lyme specific bands are positive, then I know almost beyond a shadow of a doubt that there has at least been a, an exposure to Borrelia burgdorferi at some time in the past. And then if there's three, four, or five, then there, it's pretty certain there's something going on. Um, and then the same within the IgM antibodies. If they have one come up, it's not positive according to the CDC, but it's still a pretty high clinical suspicion for me. And so at that time, I'm talking to the patient about pursuing some of the more sensitive and specific tests that are available, for example, through Vibrant Wellness or through Igenex or some of the other more you know, functional te- labs. Um, and those tests range out of pocket from around 450 to mul- multiple thousands of dollars, depending on how many co-infections, which are the other little Lyme friends that travel with Borrelia, depending on how many are included. So those are more expensive and usually I'll use the more standard or more widely available tests as a screen. And then when things look suspicious, then I'm moving on to the expensive tests if possible. All right. Well, what are some ways to treat Lyme disease and is it curable? Yeah. So I'll answer the second question first. Um, Is it curable? Because 
I don't think we can actually answer that. <laughs> we don't have a test right now that says, yes, 100%, every last spirochete, which is the type of bacteria that Lyme is, has been eradicated from your body. We just don't have a way of saying that that is the case. Um, and so we can't necessarily identify whether someone has been cured. And within the Lyme world, arguably, we don't need to eradicate every last spirochete to get the person out of a diseased state. So what we use, what term we use is, is more remission. The patient is in remission. Um, but what can be tricky is that later down the line, you know, say 5, 10, 20 years, um, there can be a, a some sort of stressor, like either a car accident or a grief in the family, emotional, physical, whatever kind of stressor, the Lyme can kind of resurface at that time. And many cases, we don't necessarily know whether that's a new exposure or whether that's the dormant Lyme becoming reactivated. But that is a pretty common thing that we see. But in terms of treatment, so naturopathic doctors and, you know, more Lyme literate doctors really differ from the way that standard uh, mainstream medicine approaches Lyme. The mainstream medical approach is if you were bitten by a tick within a certain period of time, they'll give you three or four weeks of antibiotics, usually doxycycline. And I would say in most cases, that's insufficient to actually tr comprehensively treat at least chronic Lyme. In some acute Lyme cases where they might have actually just been bit by a tick, that can be comprehensive enough. But in most cases, that falls short. So naturopathic doctors were approaching each patient individually. Um, we're taking a functional medicine approach, so doing often really comprehensive lab testing, and if hormones are off, we're helping to support hormones. If B vitamins are off and methylation is off, we're helping to support those pathways. Um, helping with detoxification and immune support, we're optimizing the gut and working on inflammation, and that's kind of just the overarching overview, but more specifically, um, some of the core treatment approaches that we use, at least in our office. And again, if you ask 100 Lyme doctors how they treat Lyme, you're going to get 100 different answers. <laughs> There's just so many, so many routes. But we'll usually target the known infections with antimicrobials, and that may be utilizing herbs which there's just an endless list of herbs that we might use. We might use IVs, including ozone or hydrogen peroxide or argentin or laser. Ozone therapy is huge. And like you just had mentioned, methylene blue, which I want to talk about, that's shown to be very effective for Lyme as well as mold. Yeah, ozone is kind of like our, I would say, a bit more foundational. Like we've had it for, I don't know how many years at this point, but we've been using it for a long time with Lyme. And um, we do see really good results, I would say, with ozone. And it has so many other effects on the body that are really supportive. It's not just killing microbes. It's also helping to reduce inflammation. It's stimulating your body's own antioxidant pathways. It can even help to balance hormones and oxygenating the system. So there's a lot of other benefits. Methylene blue is a little bit more newer on the scene, I would say, particularly with respect to its use with Lyme and some of the other co-infections like Bartonella. I would say it's a bit more expensive and it's not as cost effective to pursue the IV approach with methylene blue because we do have it available as uh, oral. 
whereas ozone, that's not possible. So with respect to IVs, we're doing more IV ozone than IV methylene blue. But that said, often we're combining methylene blue with laser, which is called photodynamic therapy. And then sometimes we're combining photodynamic therapy, which is methylene blue laser with ozone and hyperbaric. So sometimes it's kind of a whole comprehensive approach. But yeah, both of those have been, we've had a lot of success with Lyme and using those kinds of tools. And there's many, many other treatments. I did mention hyperbaric oxygen. We also utilize pulsed electromagnetic frequency treatments. And and that's really just kind of the, the overall antimicrobial approach where, again, we're working to balance the hormones, the adrenals, the um, immune system and inflammatory or utilizing anti-inflammatory supports correcting nutrient deficiencies and, and on and on. So you really have to take a, because it's such a complex multi-system disease, you have to take a multi-pronged approach because most of the symptoms that people have with Lyme disease are actually caused by the immune system itself. It's not actually driven uh, by the microbes. So eradicating the microbes is only one piece to the whole puzzle. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously taking an approach and many people listening, if not all, of course they want to take the holistic approach and they don't want to be on antibiotics for three weeks. And I've heard of people being on antibiotics for years Years. because of Lyme. And that's obviously not ideal and that'll cause tons of other issues. So taking a holistic approach and getting at Lyme from all different angles, diet, sleep, detoxification, and all different herbs and sweating and things like that. Um, Obviously, that is ideal. And if someone is looking for that, should they definitely look for someone to guide them? They shouldn't just try and do it on their own. Should they try and look for a holistic practitioner? Where do they go? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I'm all about power to the people, right? Like putting, you know, the power to take care of yourselves back in the hands of the population, right? Rather than this sort of medical industrial complex that has taken a lot of our power away. And I think herbal medicine is, um, you know, really belongs in the hands of the people and that there are tools out there that you can utilize without really needing some sort of authority, medical authority. Uh, It takes a little bit of self-education, but Um, I think that those tools should be available to people. But that said, when it comes to complex situations like Lyme disease and mold mold illness, um, having somebody that has seen hundreds, if not thousands of patients go through similar processes becomes really valuable because they can pick up right away, like say you're having some sort of reaction to an herb, they'll know right away most of the time, if they're pretty experienced, they might know, is this a Herxheimer reaction? So is it a reaction that is actually a presentation of die-off? So the microbes are dying? Or is it a reaction because you're not detoxing appropriately? Or is it actually a reaction to the herb? You're hypersensitive and the herb's just not the right one for you. And so when the situation is as complex as Lyme or mold is, are having an experienced provider just becomes such a a critical tool because otherwise you're kind of going in circles and trying this supplement and this herb and and some of these treatments can really kind of screw you up, particularly if there's a lot of immunological dysregulation as there is with mold and Lyme. 
And so finding a provider is important. And so ILADS is an organization, uh, the International Lyme and Associated Diseases Society, I believe is what it stands for, ILADS.org. And they have a, a list of Lyme literate providers. There's many others out there that aren't going to show up on that list, but that's one place to go. ILADS? Mm-hmm. ILADS, A-I-L-A-D-S, which is one of the more, I would say, renowned organizations of just Lyme information. And it's a collection of doctors that meet every year and that are pretty deeply involved in this world. But there's, you know, they, I think that their list that they have online is the physicians that have gone through their Lyme disease training. And there are many others out there that haven't necessarily gone through that training that are still perfectly credible and valuable. But they that is one place to start. Those providers that might be more highly concentrated in the Northeast. But just doing a good old like Google search, what I would search for is naturopathic doctor, Lyme literate, your city. And then if you know anybody that has worked with a provider and they had a good experience and they feel good about that provider, word of mouth is, you know, asking your community is a really good way to go as well. Wonderful. Great advice. Now uh, let's touch a little bit about methylene blue. First of all, what is it and uh, how do you take it and is it safe? Yeah, so methylene blue is a really interesting molecule, I would say. It was developed in the late 1800s by, I believe, a German chemist as a textile dye. And through a series of events, the medical field got its hands on it, I believe, because it was a pretty good dye for identifying things under the microscope. Um, You know, it would illuminate the... Uh, cell wall of certain things. They were using it as a dye, but then they found it. I believe the first thing that they found that it killed was malaria. Um, And so they found it was a pretty good anti-malarial drug. Um, Actually very effective and is still used to this day in some cases for malaria. And, And then they sort of found that it had other effects as well. They found it was antibacterial, in some cases antiviral, and even antifungal and and antiparasitic. So it got used in various different departments and then sort of fell out of common practice for a while, sort of got forgotten about. And I'm sure you can read into potentially why that might have happened. (laughs) But within the past, um, you know, maybe five, ten or so years, the biohacking community has kind of grabbed a hold of it because it is a pretty strong nootropic, which means that it sort of improves human thinking, learning, and memory. Um, And so the biohacking, and because it's available, I don't know if you can even say over the counter, like there's some interesting ways of going about getting it because because it's used for so many different things as a textile dye and otherwise, but... I've been taking it and I I love it. And I know that there's tons of research to back. Not only is it immune boosting, it does help your cognitive thinking. It's Mm -hmm. very useful in treating UTIs. Absolutely. I've I've read too that it's been very helpful and successful in treating a very common virus that's been going around for a couple of years. So, (laughs) you know, um, people have been using it and I think it's amazing. So- Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it is really amazing. What methylene blue does is it's a redox buffer, which means it can accept or donate electrons repeatedly. So it can kind of go back and forth. And there's not that many molecules or drugs out there that can do that. 
Um, it's also a monoamine oxidase inhibitor or MAO inhibitor. Um, so what that does is it increases norepinephrine and 5-hydroxytryptophan functionality. It inhibits nitric oxide synthase, which is something that uh, vasodilates. Um, but some of the more effects that you know people are using it today for um, are things like increased ATP production, uh, when ATP is adenosine triphosphate, so that's sort of our cellular currency or cellular energy. Um, it increases NAD production, it decreases lactic acid production, increases glucose consumption, and it increases oxygen consumption. So it just has a wide range of effects. It's a potent antioxidant. Um, and so what that means is that there's uses for it um, for conditions across the board, really. I mean, at the end of the day, it supports metabolism or it helps to correct metabolic dysfunction. And we see metabolic dysfunction in, I would say, almost every single chronic illness. But people are using it for things like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, fibromyalgia, autoimmune diseases, um, general mitochondrial issues like chronic fatigue, cancer fatigue and diabetes, and the list kind of goes on. Is it safe? It's pretty safe. <laughs> from my research, I ha I'm having a hard time finding any negative or side effects from it. Yeah. So, well, there are side effects, but the side effects are, are you know, dose dependent. Um, so not as common at, at lower doses, but it is a pregnancy category X considered drug. So should not be used whatsoever in pregnant people, no questions asked. And I mean, to be honest, many things fall into that category, but for good reason with methylene blue. It also can cause hemolysis or basically the bursting of red blood cells if somebody has a G6PD deficiency or glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase deficiency. And that's a pretty rare genetic condition, but it is out there. And if somebody with a G6PD deficiency, and many people don't know they have it, took methylene blue, many of the red blood cells would essentially burst and that can be a real big problem. And then I would say what is the most concerning about methylene blue is that even the pharmaceuticals of so the USP grade methylene blue may contain impurities, including arsenic, aluminum, cadmium, mercury, and lead. So those are all heavy metals. And this is especially a concern at high doses because these contaminants can accumulate in the patient's tissues. Industrial grade, which is kind of what's, you know, I don't necessarily know what they're selling on Amazon, but it's probably industrial grade methylene blue, can contain 8 to 11% of these contaminants. Um, so what people are potentially getting you know, without a prescription is possibly highly toxic with heavy metals that these are things that I'm, you know, working till I'm blue in the face, <laughs> no pun intended, to try to get out of people, <laughs> right? So mercury and lead and arsenic and, and the, these types of heavy metals are, are really problematic for the system and can cause a lot of damage in the body. And so you don't really want to be utilizing a substance that is increasing your toxicity level. And so getting a really clean, high-quality source is important. And the, the highest likelihood of that is through a compounding pharmacy with the prescription. Yeah, I'm, I get mine from a place in Canada, actually. And it's so it, it takes a while to get here. But 
you know, you definitely want to make sure it is pure. Now you had mentioned pregnancy that, and what if someone is trying to get pregnant? So they're not pregnant, but they're trying, should they go off of it? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, with somebody that is actively trying to get pregnant, you never know when they're going to get pregnant. Like, is it going to be this month? Is it next month? And a lot of people won't know for a few weeks that they are pregnant. And so I don't think, in my opinion, methylene blue should be anywhere near that person's protocol. Um, that said, it might be a valuable tool in the time period leading up to conception. So maybe you're working on your provide with your provider to kind of optimize your fertility and your overall like system to make sure that pregnancy is goes as beautifully as it possibly can. And I would say working with a provider, you know, more six months or more before the time of conceiving would be good in terms of just going through like a basic detox and checking your hormones and making sure your body's it's a good time for you to get pregnant. And and so methylene blue might come in handy during those times, particularly if somebody has struggled with infertility in the past because the uh, the ovaries are highly concentrated with mitochondria. And because it's such a potent mitochondrial supporter, methylene blue might be valuable in terms of trying to improve that woman's fertility. But then I would say discontinuing it long before the time of conception is really important. Got it. Got it. Great advice. Now, okay, before we close, where can people find you? Pimp yourself out. What's your Instagram? (laughs) All that good stuff. Yeah. So you can find me on Instagram. My handle is dr.marian.nd and Marian is M-A-R-I-A-N. My website is drmarian.com, d-r-m-a-r-i-a-n.com. And I've got a bunch of material on there, but I am working on a few other projects that will be coming down the pipeline within the next year or so. Well, I cannot wait to see what those are. So thank you again for joining me today. And hopefully everyone listening got some really good little nuggets here and they can take something away and better their lives. Thank you so much, doctor. Thank you so much. This was fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of Digest This. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review in your podcast app to let us know. If you're ever wondering how you can support me and this podcast, sharing it with your friends and family is the best way. This is a resonant media production produced by Drake Peterson and edited by Chris McCone. To email the show, message us at digestthispod at gmail.com. See you next time. The content of this show is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for individual medical and mental health advice and does not constitute a provider-patient relationship. As always, talk to your doctor or health team first. Looking to build a more robust foundation in your health and well-being? From the producer of Digest This comes one of the most popular alternative health shows on Apple Podcasts, The Dr. Tina Show. Dr. Tina Moore is a naturopathic physician and chiropractor, traditionally and alternatively trained in science and medicine. The show features exclusive interviews with experts such as Sean Stevenson, Mike Mutzel, Mark Groves, and even solo episodes covering metabolic health, pharmaceuticals, chronic diseases, long hauler syndrome, and pain management. Dr. Tina delivers the information in a no-nonsense, real-world style, and she has the science to back it up. The Dr. Tina Show is edgy, entertaining, and informative. Every episode will leave you with a new pearl of health wisdom to expand your knowledge base. 
When you're empowered, you can do better for yourself, your family, and your community. Resilience is the name of the game, and Dr. Tina is here to guide you on your way. Listen to The Dr. Tina Show today on your favorite podcast app. New episodes every Wednesday. Produced by Drake Peterson and Resident Media.